We have been talking over the last few weeks uh, about radical hospitality. We had a gap actually and I'm really excited to be able to continue through this season and through this series. Uh, And look, the heartbeat of this series is about, I suppose, inspiring, encouraging us by looking at the scriptures to understand what it means to open our heart, our homes, our tables, our fridges and to eat with one another regularly as, as an extended family and to have a heartbeat to see people's lives transformed through radical hospitality. And so I've been going through this scripture, uh, Luke 7, 33 to 34 is one of the key scriptures. And here it says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton uh, and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Now I unpacked this scripture the first uh, in the first sermon that I gave. And I suppose that the power here isn't so much that Jesus was a drunk and a glutton, but it's, it's remarkable. I think it's remarkable that he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. And there's something about Jesus and the way he was holy, the holiness of his humanity, which was just different than the religious people of the day. Uh, he ate, he drank, he laughed, he loved, and he did it in such a way that was holy and full of faith and, and Christ-likeness or godliness, and yet it was also very different than the way in which people expected a prophet or a messiah to behave. And uh, so last time I also progressed, I talked about meeting together, M-E-A-T-I-N-G, and uh, the heartbeat of what would it look like if we could eat together as extended families, uh, people who followed Christ as apprentices, and, um, and what if we could see uh, little pockets of families eating together on a regular basis across the suburbs of Hobart. I am so thankful that since that um, talk that I gave about a month ago, I've had a number of people come to me and say, we're thinking and dreaming and praying about what it might look like to start eating together in our suburb and, and maybe inviting our neighbours to start eating with us. So I'm really thankful for the, the move that God is doing in our lives. And so let's keep praying for that vision that we may see these little communities pop up around the place. Um, but today I'm going to talk about uh, the heart of hospitality. And I want to talk about what is the heart behind Christian hospitality So what is our motivation? Why do we eat together? Why do we find eating together such a radical thing? And and how does it relate to Scripture? So uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Tim, my business partner, and I went to Adelaide and we spent four days speaking at... Well, a few days speaking at a conference. It was a four-day trip. And uh, it was speaking to boarding school leaders. And for us, it was a really big deal. <coughs> there was heaps and heaps and heaps and heaps of pre- uh, preparation before we went. And uh, we spoke to lots of different people. And it was lots you know, intense conversations. We met lots of people that we hadn't met before. And then we travelled there, travelled back. It was just a big trip. And I flew back on a Wednesday. And uh, so we were in Adelaide. And I would have thought, oh, well, Adelaide to Hobart's pretty quick. But it was like Handorf to Adelaide, Adelaide to Melbourne, Melbourne to Hobart, Hobart back to home. It was like eight hours of travel by the time we actually made it just from one destination to the next. It's remarkable, but um, I was pretty exhausted um, by the time I got back. Uh, I, being an introvert, I had had lots and lots of stuff, um, lots of conversations, and I just really felt just shattered. But Wednesday night is big dinner night, and it's when we eat together as our missional community every single week, 
uh, one fortnight we eat with neighbours and we have a whole heap of people from the local neighbourhood from our street eat with us every single week. Um, most people aren't apprentices of Jesus, we're just one big community. And then the other fortnight we eat just as extended family from church and we, uh, we pray, we eat, we talk and, and we discover more about Jesus together. And so I got home I think at about uh, 5.45 and big dinner started at 6. I'm like, oh, I needed everything that I could just open that door and, and walk in and say hi to everyone. Um, but, you know, part of, I suppose, the practice of being in community is to turn up even when you don't feel like it. And so I rocked up, walked into the door um, and went to what we call it small dinner because it's only 16 people. So, um, so we went to small dinner that night and, um, and look... It, it took a bit of warming up. Luckily, someone handed me a glass of wine and gave me a hug and I kind of just sat there and wasn't bombarded. I just sat there for a bit. We, uh, we said grace. We said thanks to God, as we normally do. Uh, I ate, listened to a few stories from the kids, shared a few stories from my trip and, uh, and just enjoyed the stories of life around a, a shared table together. And look, afterwards we would normally put the kids to sleep, come back and then read the scriptures, pray, do some type of huddle or, or some type of... Um, uh, we, we'd try to work out what God is saying to us and, and encourage each other in our walk as apprentices. But um, to be honest, I was so tired that I just said to everyone, can, I, can we just go to bed? <laughs> How about we just sing a few songs instead with the kids? And so people thought that was a great idea. So we went to Mick and Jules, a little tiny kind of area in their house where they've got a piano, and we just played some songs. And I thought, we'll play two songs, go to bed. But the first two songs were just really great, and the kids were just into it, and they're not always into it. Uh, so we played a third song, and then we played a fourth song, and then it was just like the Spirit of God just fell on our community and it was just this beautiful amazing evening Kylie was playing one keyboard I think Julia was on piano Michael was playing guitar with the kids on like um, clapsticks that they brought back uh, Aboriginal clapsticks that Mick and Jules got on their trip recently we had maracas and egg shakers and and Jethro and Lexi Mimi everyone was just yelling out the songs and and at one point, I remember someone was <laughs> raising their hands and shouting out words. And it was just this amazing experience. And um, yeah, and I just remember oh, walking away feeling so refreshed and energized, even though it was so hard to turn up in the first place. Uh, in fact, Lexi was interesting. Lexi said at the end, uh, who is Michael and Julia's young daughter, she said, oh, can we do this every week? There was just something beautiful about being in community. And, um, and so I suppose that reminds me a lot about uh, the heart of hospitality, that sometimes uh, simple things become extraordinary. I read this out last time I spoke. Tim Chester said, The Christian community often wears me out, winds me up, and drives me crazy. But I also have moments where I look at my brothers and sisters and know the presence of the risen Christ. It's not that my community is anything special, Yet there are moments when I see Christ incognito among the ragtag people sitting in my front room and then it seems he's gone again. And I really resonate with that. Um, being in community, doing life together, eating together regularly, it's actually quite a lot of work and it can be tough and we are a ragtag bunch of people, including myself. I was in a cranky mood that night and yet at the same time, God just turns up and he just appears and beautiful stuff happens and it's really amazing. Uh, and I suppose the ordinary turns extraordinary. 
So, look, I want to talk about um, the heart of hospitality and, and about what it means to experience the miraculous as ordinary Christians through the practice of eating together. And it's not just about food, it's about the heart behind the food. Okay, and this, this is where there's a bit of a difference, I think, in our vision and our imagination of what it means to eat with others. So, I can't even pronounce his name, but Richard Kreker, I think, uh, said this, Hospitality is a disposition, an attitude, a way of life founded in the example of Christ. So, it's about generosity, it's about love, it's about grace, it's about our heart, our posture, rather than just the food we put on a table. Uh, there's a few scriptures that back this. So Matthew 4, so this is the New Testament. Jesus speaks and he says that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's a very similar heartbeat. Um, Romans 14, 17, the Apostle Paul says that for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So there's more than food. And I really love this um, proverb. This one comes from King Solomon. Uh, better a bread crust shared in love than a slab of prime rib served in hatred. Now, it's, it's, it's the message translation, but I really love that. Better a bread crust shared in love than a slab of prime rib served in hatred. And what he's saying is it's better to have a very simple basic meal, even if you hardly have any, anything to prepare and do it in love and grace with a posture of community than to have an incredibly lavish, uh, rich meal and actually do it um, with unforgiveness and bitterness and crankiness. Uh, so the heart behind the food we serve matters. And look, so while eating and drinking, sharing life together is important, um, there's something about yeah, the, the way we do it. And, and so what I want to look at is I want to look at the scriptures and, and, and look at this incredible story uh, from the life of Jesus, an event that surprises me and I think it should surprise and shock us and I think it speaks a lot into the heart of hospitality. It's from John 2, uh, verse 1 to 11. It's a story about Jesus' very first recorded miracle. Okay, so you read the account of the Gospel of John. So this is John's account of Jesus' life and uh, his very first miracle where he basically publicly becomes... Um, a messiah figure, a, a prophet, a, a celebrity, I suppose. His very first event is about water, it's about um, a party, and it's about lots and lots of wine. So let me read this. Okay, so, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. My dear one, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood uh, six stone water jars, the kind used for Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best 
till now. And then what Jesus did here in Cana in Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. It's a remarkable story. Okay? And we read this, you know, we've heard the story before, Jesus turns water to wine, but I actually think we need to examine what this miracle is about and think about it in terms of our life and our imagination and our relationship with Jesus. So, uh, a bit of context. Okay, we need to know the context. So, the wedding, it was a big wedding, okay? Um, a Galilean wedding. So, Galilee, I've been there, it's in northern Israel. It is a little backwater town in the middle of nowhere. Like, we talk about rural and remote communities. It is definitely rural and remote. It was not the power centre of anything. Uh, it wasn't a significant place on the map and people didn't go through it for any particular reason. And that's where Jesus was brought up. So you've got this little rural and remote village in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, and, and weddings in that type of the world were not like the type of weddings we have in Australia. Okay, so they weren't, you know, beautiful regal events where people dressed up and they had, I don't know, photographers and beautiful cakes and everyone was on their best behaviour and maybe had a three-piece kind of band. Uh, it, it wasn't that type of wedding. It was a lot less restrained. Uh, Mike Frost, who writes about this passage in a book called Jesus the Fool, he says this, So the Galilean wedding was a rough and ready affair. Uh, basically, it was about eight days... Eight-day wedding. It's interesting. I mean, it still happens in the Middle East now, but we don't have eight-day weddings, thank goodness. It was about an eight-day wedding, of an orgy of eating and drinking and celebrating. Basically, it was a massive party. And that is how weddings happened in Galilee. And so you had the father, okay? And the father uh, has a very central role in leading and preparing for this wedding. Um, so what, what a, a traditional um, father would do in these days is they would, um, obviously, almost every family had a vine and a fig tree. That was the Jewish icons of the day. And so they would make wine, and, and every year they would put aside one barrel of wine uh, in clay jars, and they would, they would seal it up from the day that their daughter had been born. Okay, so the average, uh, so, so the average wedding age of a, um, a daughter in those days was about 15 or 16 years old, much younger than today. But imagine that. Every year, the father would put aside one jar of wine uh, in preparation for this very, very special event, which is his daughter's wedding. And so, obviously, when the wedding day comes, well, you have some... Uh, barrels that are 16 years old, which are the choice wine, and others which are like vinegar, <laughs> which are about a year old. And so in tradition, what would happen is when the daughter had their wedding day, then the oldest wine, the wine that was put aside near the day of her birth would come out and it would be beautiful and it would be rich and it would be, it would be tasty, at least by the standards of the day. And people would enjoy it and they would shout and whatever they do and, and celebrate the the wedding of this couple and then over time as the days went by and people got progressively drunker or more tired then they would bring out the worst wine the worst wine i imagine for the introverts just so they could get people to go home eventually you know this wine is so bad maybe it's time to head home um, so that's what would traditionally happen but in this situation something unthinkable happened uh, the wine ran out now, we, we kind of read that passage, but there's actually significance in that passage. So um, the wine doesn't run out at a wedding. 
particularly not for a wealthy person. Okay? So th this indicates that this family was not actually that well-to-do. Uh, if the wine runs out, it means that you cannot provide for your daughter's own wedding. And for us, we would find that embarrassing. But for a, uh, a Galilean family where it was an honour-shame culture, if you can't provide for your guests in a hospitality culture, if you can't provide for your own daughter's wedding, well, you will be known as the family who didn't... Who's, You'll be known as the family who ran out of wine. Do you know what I mean? You're, that you will become the family who can't provide for your own siblings. And that's actually a really shameful thing. And so when Mary says to Jesus, look, this family is, is about to become a family of shame because the wine ran out, well, actually, it's actually a really big deal. Um, and Jesus responds in the most extraordinary way. He has not yet released, he has not yet come into the world to, to, to show people what he can do. Mary knows, because otherwise she wouldn't have gone to Jesus. But, but uh, he does the most amazing miracle. He, he gets more than 100 litres of wine, okay? Well, more than 100 litres of water, and he turns it into premium wine. And uh, so that's about, I don't know, 130, 150 bottles of wine that he gives to a party of people that are already pissed. And then he says, There's my first miracle. <laughs> It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, think about it, really. It, it's quite extraordinary. He takes 100 litres of wine, he creates, let's say, I don't know, premium grade Pinot Noir, okay? And then, and then he dishes it out to a bunch of people who have been partying for days and days on end. And that is how God decides to reveal himself. I think that is quite interesting. And we look at Jesus being accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, if you start like this, you're probably going to earn a bad rep. Um, but, but we need to ask the question, well, what on earth is this about? Because he wasn't a glutton and he wasn't a drunkard. Uh, it, it wasn't obviously about getting people drunk and it wasn't about using alcohol irresponsibly. There is something miraculous and important happening for Jesus to turn water into wine in this way. So we t we've talked about fences. There's my question. We've talked about fences in the past. And the, the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the time, they ran Judaism, they ran culture. Uh, they ran and created an onerous religious system uh, of in and out, of clean and unclean, where you had to follow rules and regulations and be a particular way and think a particular way and act a particular way in order to be accepted, not just in the religion, but into the society as a whole. Uh, if, if you touched something or you didn't wash your hands or you, you were unclean, uh, then you would be excluded not only from the religious activities, but you'd be excluded from the marketplace, from society uh, at large. And so they created this religious system of rules and regulations and in and out. It was superstitious and, and it actually excluded those a lot of people in society who probably a whole lot of people from Galilee, actually, who wouldn't otherwise be accepted. And, uh, and in many ways, religion became a big fence between us and each other and between us and God. And so Jesus comes and, and he takes these um, ceremonial jars. And the reason they have these is they wash, people come in and they wash their hands in a particular way. It's about cleansing. It's about religious rites so that people can become clean and so they can follow the rules and regulations and then they will enter the system of uh, being okay. And Jesus takes these ceremonial jars which represent a religious system of separation between us and God of legalism and he injects grace and love and joy by turning 
these water jars into Pinot. And it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And really what he does is he cuts the fence between us and God and he says, I have come to inaugurate and to create a different type of kingdom. I have come to rip apart all the separations and divisions uh, between people and the divisions between people and God and I'm going to actually create grace and transform the way we live our life and to create a new type of religion. I'm going to take heaven on and bring it down to earth. I'm going to turn water into wine and we'll celebrate around a meal as a huge party. And that's what my ministry is about. So you can see he's a very different type of prophet. He's a very different type of Messiah. A different, uh, a under, he, he breaks our schema about who God is and how God acts. And I think this is the heart of hospitality. It's not about food and drink. It's about a posture of love and openness where we expect God to transform the ordinary and make it extraordinary. So, you know, what he did, he, he, by turning water into wine, he took heaven and he brought it, on, he brought it into earth. Uh, and by doing so... He actually took the ordinary and he made it extraordinary. He, he took symbols that were about <coughs> separation and religion and laws and rules and he created uh, freedom and grace and connection and community. And you see how radical that is. I think it is a remarkable way to start Jesus' miracles and ministry. And so as, as apprentices of Jesus, uh, we are called to eat and drink in the same manner with the same heart and to, to have the same desire that God will do something on earth as in heaven. Rosaria Butterfield, uh, she says this, those who live out radical, radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all. I need glasses. But as God's... I'm going to read it this way. But as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors, they seek out the underprivileged, they know that the gospel comes with a house key. I mean, it's beautiful. If you want to be radically ordinary in your hospitality, the gospel comes with a house key. We open up our homes and we expect God to do amazing things. So in many ways, uh, the kingdom of God, God's kingdom is not about food and drink, it's about God breaking in and transforming our tables. So the kingdom of God is a really, really important concept for us as believers because Jesus spoke more about the kingdom than anything else. He didn't actually spend a lot of time speaking about the church at all, but he spent a lot of time talking about the kingdom and demonstrating the kingdom. So the kingdom of God as a phrase is used more than 80 times in the New Testament. Uh, he uses the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of light. So if you put them together, that's used a lot of times. And so Jesus didn't come just to establish church. He came to teach and bring about the kingdom of God. So, I mean, we know the Lord's Prayer. Most of us know this. Okay, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What comes next? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a central prayer. It's what we're meant to be praying every single day. And what we're praying is what happens on hev in heaven actually occurs in our lives right 
now, which is really, really remarkable, and we, we can't miss this. We're really praying that the ordinary will become extraordinary, that water will be turned into wine in our own lives day by day. Uh, so the kingdom of God, a definition is it's the reign and rule of God. An Old Testament scholar, Graham Goldsworthy, calls the kingdom of God, God's people in God's place under God's rule. Uh, so very simply, I mean, I'm going to do a lot of theology very quickly, but the kingdom of God is God's kingdom. So God is king of his kingdom. Okay? And uh, in God's kingdom, there is no pain, there is no sickness, there's no greed, there's no suffering, no environmental degradation. It is the way the world is meant to be. It's unity between people, between God, between creation. And, and the kingdom of God, so we use this term heaven loosely, but, but heaven is not up there. That is not a biblical understanding. Okay? The heaven is not the Milky Way. It's not up in the sky. It's not in the stars. It's not in the universe. The, the, heaven is a dimension. The kingdom of heaven is a dimension of God. It's, it's where God reigns and where he rules, where we experience his presence. It's a really different understanding from what we see in the old cartoons um, about heaven and hell. And so in the beginning, um, Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and the kingdom of heaven and earth were the same. Okay, so God walked in the garden with his people. There was no brokenness, no suffering, no sin and, and, um, and heaven was on earth because God's dimension was constantly around us. Um, but then because the evil one broke in and Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin entered the world and there was a separateness between our world and God's world. Um, the evil one, who we know as Satan, ended up ruling our world, which is one of the reasons there's so much brokenness and pain and suffering. And, and God's reality became separate and sin started to transform the way in which we lived. I'm very, very fast theology. Um, but then God came in Jesus. This is his plan, and he rescued us. Um, he came back into this realm of earth. Heaven came back to earth in the person of Jesus, and he showed us what it looked like. He turned water to wine, <laughs> and that's what it looks like for heaven to come to earth. He healed sick people. He, he restored brokenness. He reached out and transformed religious establishments. He, he, he brought about justice, and then he said, as we follow him, we will do the same. Um, but uh, he had to break the power and authority of the evil one, and that's why he died. He rose again, and as he did, he transformed our relationship with God and heaven and earth became closer once more. So we live in this time, you may have heard this theologically, of the now and the not yet. We live in this time where heaven can be close at times and we can experience the beauty of God in our world right now, and yet there are times where it feels distant. You know, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is present, so it's near, but he also said that the kingdom of God is not near. He also said it's delayed. He also said it's coming. So we live in this kind of in-between time where sometimes we experience God, heaven on earth, sometimes we experience brokenness. Um, and that's our reality. But one day we know that Jesus will return and actually transform us. There'll be a rising from the dead, a judgment, and those uh, who follow Christ will re-establish a connection with him. Heaven will be on earth. So we don't go to heaven heaven comes to earth and all will be restored. That is our belief, um, which is different than what some of us understand, but certainly what the scriptures teach. Um, so, there, I mean, that's a massively fast 
overview of theology and so hopefully that's not too fast but um, the idea of a king and a kingdom is really hard for us to understand in Aussie society because we don't have a king and we don't have a kingdom we don't submit to anyone except for ourselves the most important person in the world is me okay so we, we don't understand this idea of actually um, being under a king's rule we don't understand the reality of that uh, we need to we need to grasp that because part of being an apprentice of Jesus is making him king. Uh, but it's hard for us to understand. So what I've put together is a, a little bit of an analogy about the kingdom of God from a hospitality point of view. Um, and then I'm going to move into the final bits. So, so another way of understanding the kingdom of God is the generous hospitality of God. Okay? So we, uh, we used to have a home. We used to have a warm and loving home with a good father... Uh, who loved us dearly. We had family. Good for Father's Day. We had a good dad. Okay? And we experienced a good dad. It was a place of laughter, a place of warmth, a place of shelter. There was a warm fire, um, just great jokes, good board games, fantastic coffee. It's heaven. That's what it's meant to be. Right? This is what heaven is. It's the way we came. We know this in our heart. I mean, in our spirit, we know this is the way we were made to be. But then we left. Um, and we are now in a place of homesickness. So we were forced to leave, you know, our beautiful kind of home, ended up in a concrete jungle, an urban jungle, um, lots of busyness, I don't know, lots of, lots of work to do, cold, dark winters, um, instead of beautiful coffee, you end up with kind of Woolworths milk that, you know, rips off farmers, and the coffee is kind of milky, watery down, an English coffee, um, you know, and, and so while we're drinking our poor English coffee, we're remembering what coffee used to be like at home. Um, but there are glimpses occasionally, okay, where we know actually we do feel homesick. We know that we're made for somewhere else. We know that this can't be reality. And yet at the same time, we experience it and it remem we remember it. But we miss, our, we miss it as well. When we see that sunset, we remember that God is true, but we also miss him. Um, and so the, the promise... Uh, and this is what Jesus did, is he brought us home. There, there is a promise of a homecoming, and because of what Jesus has done, home comes into our homesickness on a regular basis, and it's beautiful. Uh, so one day we will go home to that dog and that warm blanket, those board games and, and that family, um, but we can experience the beauty of that day by day in our lives in little bits. It's almost like there's a thin veil between home and where we are now, and it breaks in constantly. Maybe it's like a WhatsApp, I don't know, comes in occasionally. <laughs> but we experience God's power in the everyday, and that's the reality of the Christian life. But our heart is for more of home and less of homesickness, and for, and for us to enable others to experience God's home and God's blessing in our day-to-day. -day. Yeah? If the heart of hospitality is to turn water into wine and to create a space where home, uh, homesickness can become homeliness, where people can meet Jesus around the table, then where do we start? And, and I just want to give a few short tips about this. So, so Simon Kerry Holt, who is a theologian and a chef, always a good combo, uh, he says that hospitality is about providing a space for God's spirit to move. So we don't turn water into wine... I can't do that. I don't know if anyone here can, but I can't do that. But Jesus can. Okay? So we don't bring heaven to earth. Again, I can't do that. But God can. 
So what we do is we create a space around a dinner table, a space in our heart, a space in our home, and we, we expect, because we are God's children, that he will somehow fill that space and do miracles. Do you follow? Yep. Uh, and so our role is to make that space so that God can show up. And, and so practically to do that, I would recommend two very tangible things. We need the practice and the posture which is the heart of hospitality. Okay, so another way of saying this, we need to eat regularly with each other, which is the practice. And the posture is to be, have an intentionality. So regularity and intentionality, um, a posture and a heart for God as we eat. And as we do that, God can do amazing things. So um, this is what I mean. Okay, so the practice is to eat regularly with others. Okay, it's very hard for God to turn up around a meal table if you're not eating regularly with someone at a meal table. Okay, so back to my story on Wednesday night, it was the hardest thing to turn up, but when I did, I was able to experience the joy of God coming in and breaking into my experience in the everyday. Um, there is something beautiful about eating and drinking regularly and something faithful about that because that's what Jesus did. Um, and because he ate with friends, with disciples, with sinners, with tax collectors, we are called to do the same on a regular basis. Um, now, some people might say, look, I don't think you have to eat regularly. I think you just have to pray and have a heart for Jesus. And if we have a heart for Jesus and we pray lots, then God will just do his stuff and the kingdom will happen. Okay? And I, I disagree. Um, I, I fully believe in prayer as the, as the engine of all that we do. And I fully believe in having a heart and a passion for Jesus. But if we are apprentices of Jesus, then apprenticeship is about craftsmanship. Yeah, and you can't say I'm, I have a heart to be an apprentice carpenter well it doesn't work you actually have to grab a hammer put nails and go bang 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 and as you practice hammering nails you become an apprentice carpenter it's the same thing you can't be an apprentice of Jesus without actually practicing the works of Jesus um, we need prayer and we need the heart but you actually have to practice the stuff so I'd say um, eat together regularly as a uh, disciple is what it means to practice um, so one question, just to pause for a minute, because I've just downloaded tons of info. How often do you eat a meal with others? Other believers, particularly? Because um, I really am talking about eating as family at this stage. And then, um, and, and what might it look like to create a practice of hospitality, a rhythm in your life? Just pause for a minute and reflect in silence. Okay, so I've talked about practice. Let's talk about posture. Uh, in terms of posture, you have to have the heart as well. Okay, if you just practice hospitality, but the heart is, you just don't have a passion for Jesus, then you're just cooking chicken. <laughs> just cutting meat. That's all it is. Do you know what I mean? Like, so, so the radical ordinariness has to be radical as well as ordinary. And um, and that's a lot more intangible. So Paul again says that the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's something about the Holy Spirit that transforms our meetings as we have the right heart for him. So I don't know how to describe how to do this. I mean, the kinds of things for me that lead to a passion for Jesus are um, worshipping him, singing songs, reading scripture, eating together with others. Um, praying, being connected with the body of Christ, worshipping in a church service. But, but I mean, we, we put ourselves in that place where 
where we regain Christ as our first love and we, we know how much he has done for us and then it just outflows into how we cook, how we eat, how we live, how we love. Um, and, and without that, uh, the meals are just meals. Um, so, and, and the thing here is, oh, and so again, the simple analogy, you've, heard, you've probably heard this before, but, but um, if we are Christians and we aren't in the fire, then it just, as in with other Christians, <laughs> then, um, then it's very easy to burn out. You know, I, I, typical analogy, we were in Piccaninny, which is like a place we go every year, we always have fires, and um, at the end of the outdoor fire, I, I took a coal out of the fire and I, I showed Naomi and I said, Naomi, what will happen now that it's out of the fire? And very, very quickly it, it just went cold and stopped emitting heat. But you put it back into the fire and it warms up pretty quickly. And then not only does it warm up, it starts to give heat to all the other coals. There's something about being in community, about sharing life together that is absolutely critical to follow f- Christ in a secular world that doesn't follow him. Um, so I suppose part of being passionate is to continue being in the fire, which is why we're here today. Um, and I'll just finish this part with uh, this quote from Tim Chester, that meals are not enough, they create a great platform for gospel opportunities, but must be accompanied by a passion for people and a passion for Jesus. You don't forgive a little sermon, I never give a little sermon, do I, sorry. Um, you don't forgive a little sermon, but just be attentive to people and open about your faith. So um, I suppose bottom line is that we need passion, we need posture, we need intentionality and regularity, and the thing is, they connect with each other. If you eat regularly with others and worship and pray, then the passion kind of happens. And if you're passionate, then you can't help but want to eat regularly with others who share your faith and eat regularly with neighbours who don't because it's just it's part of who Jesus is and so therefore it becomes part of who we are. So where do you start? I suppose start with one or the other. Um, I'm a bit biased, maybe it's my personality. If I, if I didn't know where to start, I would probably just start by opening my home or going to a cafe regularly or eating regularly. But basically I would start by the practice of eating each week with one couple or two couples and just do it week in, week out and then see what happens. Um, I reckon often in my experience the heart tends to follow the practice um, but I know it does happen the other way around because sometimes we simply need to get on our knees and actually ask for that first love, passion of Jesus again. Um, so, so to finish, um, the heart of hospitality is to see heaven come to earth in a miraculous way around a meal table uh, so that the ordinary becomes extraordinary. It is to uh, create a space for God's spirit to move because he turns water into wine, not us. And it is to practice eating together regularly as a discipline and as a habit, but also with a heart and a posture of love for Jesus. And as we do that, quite honestly, beautiful and amazing things happen when we least expect it. So just pause for a minute and just reflect silently just in your own heart. If you want, put your hands open. It's a, I really love that as a posture towards Christ to say, hey God, what do you want to speak to me about? But I just want you to reflect on, is there anything that 
that strikes you, anything that stands out, that might be God speaking to you. And is there anything you need to do about it? Anything you want to commit to doing in your heart and your head in the next week?